Shalom and welcome back to TanakhStudy.com and our study of Sefer Devarim. My name is Menachem Liptag. Today we continue our study of Parshat Ki Shur number 4 out of 6. In today's class, we will begin in chapter 23, verse 10, and continue through chapter 24, verse 9. We will again find a wide range of topics, and all of them pretty much extensions of either Lo Tirzach, as we talk about laws of going to war again, or Lotinaf, laws about marriage and divorce, and also Lotignov, laws in relating to stealing, or an extension of the idea of stealing in regards to taking interest or taking collateral. So let's begin with Perak Chabgimo, Pasuk Yud, chapter 23, verse 10. Should you go out to war or to camp against your enemy, you must be very careful lest you do things that are evil or bad. Notice the opening line. You would expect the verse to say, when you go to war against your enemy. But for some reason, the Pasuk doesn't say when you go to war, even though it's clearly talking about going to war. It says when you go out to camp, to machaneh, against your enemy. And when doing so, you must be very careful about doing something that is bad or wrong. Why the word machaneh instead of melchama? Well, the word machaneh in Chumash, almost all the time, refers to the camp of Israel, especially the camp when the Aron and the Mishkan is at the center and the tribes of Israel camp around the Mishkan. Therefore, Eben Ezra and also Rashbam in their commentaries on these verses claim that the reason for these special laws that we're going to see soon are only because of the fact that the Aron, the Ark of God's Covenant, goes to war together with the people and because the nation goes to war together with the Ark of the Covenant, Therefore, we need special laws and we treat the army camp as though it's the camp of God, as though it's the Mishkan itself. If that's the case, then the laws that follow relate to laws of Tuman Tara, laws of ritual cleanliness. Because God's Shekhinah is present among the people because of the Aron, therefore we have very strict laws in regard to ritual cleanliness. Ramban goes in a very different direction and he says, we're talking about going to war, not necessarily because the Aron is with us, that he does not mention, but rather he says when people go to war, the tendency of soldiers is to act in a ruthless way and immoral conduct. And I'll quote with the words of the Ramban, It's well known, the custom among camps going to war, they'll eat anything. Not only will they eat disgusting things, they'll also steal and will take by force. Even someone who's usually a straight person, when it comes to war, he'll start acting in a cruel manner. When people go into war and taking revenge against their enemies, they tend to do things which are sometimes are not so morally correct. But as God's people, Ramban explains, when we go to war, we shouldn't act like other nations. We have to be kadosh, we have to be special and careful because we represent God. And if we want God to help us in battle, we have to act in a manner which makes us worthy of God's help. And that will be the direction that Ramban will take in explaining all of these verses. This approach of Ramban is very meaningful in modern-day discussions in Israel in regard to the moral nature of the army, especially when going to war. Because when people go to war and risk their lives to save other people in the nation, usually we're very forgiving in regard to the immoral behavior should it happen. And here Ramban is claiming, because we're God's people, and because we represent God as a nation, especially when we go to war, we of all people have to be extra moral when we go to battle. 
it's not very easy to keep, but it is a very high standard that Chumash is demanding from his people. And this would fit, again, into the general rubric of the laws of Sefer Devarim that are giving laws to create a nation that represents God in their day-to-day life, especially even at times when you go to war, when the overall framework is not with holiness, but even though there's a commandment sometimes to kill, that doesn't mean that we lose sight of our godliness at the same time. So let's continue now with verse 11, Pasuk Yud Aleph. Ki yevachayish asher lo yetahor mikre laila. Should there be among you a man who is not clean because something happened at night, most likely referring to a nocturnal emission, then if that happens to a person, if he has what's called tumat keri due to this nocturnal emission, he becomes unclean for the day until nightfall of the next day, then he must leave and go outside the camp and he should not return to the camp. Pasuk Yudet, verse 12. And then towards the evening, he should immerse himself in water, what we call a mikvah. And when the sun sets, then he can return to the camp. Now, the rabbis learned from here, the same law applies to the camp of the Shekhinah, not the camp of Israel, because in the camp of Israel, someone with a nocturnal emission called Tumat Keri does not have to leave the camp of Israel, only the camp of the Shekhinah. Based on this, Ebenezer understands that all these laws relate to Tuma and Tara, to ritual cleanliness. And again, the reason is because the Aron, God's Ark of the Covenant, is traveling with the people. Verse 13 will discuss another law that's necessary in our day-to-day life in a camp when we're going to war. Pasigid Gimel, V'yad shamma chutz. And you must set aside a place for you outside the camp, the word Yad here does not mean a hand, but rather a designated place. He should leave the camp and go to that place. Or what we would say in modern day language, we need to set a place for a public bathroom. Pasig verse 14. And you shall also have a spade with you among your tools or among your army gear. According to almost all the commentaries, Azenecha is referring to your military tools. So together with your military equipment, you also have to keep a little shovel with you. And when you have squatted, you shall dig a hole with your spade and cover up your excrement. Basically, we have a law here that even in a military camp, people have to be careful about cleanliness and even basic laws of sanitation are important. And now in verse 15, Pasik Tetvav, the Torah explains the reason for all these laws. Ki Adonai Elohecha because Hashem your God walks in the midst of your camp, we call the verb mitalech, or God in a state of walking. We had that same phrase in Gan Eden, where Hashem was mitalech in the Gan. Now the Pasuk continues to explain why God is walking with you in the camp. To save you and to deliver your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy. So that God must not see anything indecent among you, lest he turn away from you, and then will not be able to help you. So as Ebenezer explained, because God is dwelling in your camp, you must be kadosh, and hence be very careful about ritual purity. Or as Ramban explained, because God is fighting with you, you must act in a manner which makes you worthy of God's help, 
that hence follow all the laws of Kedoshim to you, and therefore you must not only be ritually pure, but also morally pure. We should also note that Ebenezer explained the juxtaposition of this law to the previous law about not allowing a Moabite or an Ammonite into our camp, as one of the reasons were that they hired Bilam to curse him. And we went to war against Midian, we went with the Aron. As the Pasuk said, we go to war with the Klea Kodesh Biadam. As most of the commentators explain, when they went to war against Midian, they went together with the Aron. Therefore, as we alluded to that topic in the previous verses, therefore the Torah talks here about going to war with the Aron. That reflects the general approach of the Ebenezra. Throughout this law section of Sefer Dvarim, he is consistently suggesting reasons for the juxtaposition of the different laws, even though they appear to jump from topic to topic rather randomly. One could also suggest that this randomness is intentional because it's typical of our day-to-day life, as in our day-to-day life, we constantly encounter different types of challenges, both moral and religious. And in a similar manner, these laws in Sefer Dvarim may reflect the reality of day-to-day life. So it could be that that jumpiness of topic may simply reflect the reality of day-to-day life as a nation in the land of Israel. We continue now in verse 16 with a new topic in regard to what happens when a slave runs away from his master. Do we send him back or do we keep him? Pasuk Zion, verse 16. Lot tazger ever el adunav. You shall not send a slave back to his master. Asher yinatzel elecha mim adunav. One who has run away to save himself and he's come to you because he has run away from his master. Verse 17, Pasuk Zion. What do we do instead? He shall live with you in your midst. In the place that he will choose in one of your gates, that is good for him. Do not mistreat him. Do not try to cheat him and don't take advantage of a situation. Therefore, don't mistreat him, even though it's very easy to do so. And don't think to yourself, just because I'm doing him a favor but not sending him back to his master, therefore I can treat him any way I want. In the commentators, there's a big discussion, what type of slave are we talking about? Ramban claims that we're talking about a slave who has run away from the enemy who you're going to war against, and hence is talking about a Canaanite slave, or definitely a non-Jewish slave. In fact, he adds that there might be a military advantage of accepting him, because as this slave knows the city that he ran away from, he may be able to provide you with information that will help you defeat the enemy. So from this perspective, the Ramban is saying the Torah is giving you good military advice. Then Ramban brings down the opinion of Chazal that this may even be referring to a Canaanite slave who belongs to a Jew, but who belongs to a Jew who is living outside the land of Israel. And this Canaanite slave now wants to live in the land of Israel, and he runs away from his master and comes to Israel. Even in a case like that, you do not send a slave back to his master outside the land of Israel because it's better they live within the holiness of the land of Israel. If we go back and discuss the overall nature of society, it could be that this law is very deep in regard to how we treat other people, because we were slaves in Egypt, and we were mistreated by our masters. If a slave is so unhappy with his master that he runs away, no matter who he is, the Torah says we have a responsibility to save his life and give him better opportunities. And the phrase that Chumash uses about where he stays, the place that he will choose, reminds us of the name of the Beit HaMikdash in Yerushalayim, 
if we help this runaway slave, we provide for him a sanctuary of safety. And just like God is a sanctuary for us in the Beit HaMikdash in Yerushalayim, we can be a sanctuary for them, for this slave who runs away. If you're familiar with American history, especially around the time of the Civil War, there was a big argument in regard to the need to return a slave who's run away from his master. Many laws demanded that one must return a slave to his master. I did want to mention it because we're showing the high moral standard that the Torah is setting for God's nation. Now in Pasuk Yudchet, in verse 18, we jump to a very different topic. There shall not be a female prostitute from the daughters of Israel, nor shall there be a male prostitute from the sons of Israel. Ramban explains that this is not only a commandment against prostitution, but it's also a commandment for the baiting, for the court system, to make sure that it does not exist. In other words, this is not just a commandment to the individual, it's forbidden for you to become a prostitute, but rather it's a commandment for the court system or for society to make sure that very institution does not happen in our country. So here again we find another law in Sefer Dvarim that relates to the very nature of God's people and the very character of our society. If someone has made a vow to God, that is to bring either a sacrifice or to donate money to the temple, you cannot use the money that was paid for a prostitute to buy a sacrifice to bring to God or to dedicate that money itself to God. That is referred to as etnan zona, or the money given for that prostitution. Mikhail Kelev, most commentators explain, is that when someone wants to bring a dog as a sacrifice to God, which of course God would not want, to take the money from selling a dog and using that money to buy a sacrifice to bring to God, that is also forbidden. And then Chumash explains why, because this is something detestable in the eyes of God. Both these acts, both Etnan Zona and Mechir Kelev, are considered as a Tovat Hashem, something that is detestable in the eyes of God. Therefore, they're both forbidden. Now in verse 20, we jump to another topic in regard to taking interest. Pasachat verse 20. Lo tashich lachicha neshech kesef neshech ochel neshech kol davar asher yishach. You should not charge interest to your countrymen or to your fellow man. Interest either on money or interest on food or for anything that may be loaned at interest. In biblical times, there was a very logical reason for a person to take a loan. If we're living in an agricultural society and as the crops that grow only are harvested once a year, should it be the winter time and a farmer has no food to put on his table, he may want to borrow grain or money to buy grain or whatever he needs, because he has nothing to feed his family with. But he knows that in several months, once it comes harvest season, he'll have enough grain to pay his loan back. And for that reason, he'll take a loan. Now the person lending him the money, or lending him the grain that he has, can take advantage of his plight, because he needs food for his family, and can charge interest, and he'll have to pay that interest because he has no choice. Therefore, the Torah says, do not charge interest. Rather, lend him the money or whatever it is that he needs. And when he pays you back, only take back what you borrowed and don't charge him any extra for that. Now that law relates to within the society of Israel. In verse 21, we want to make sure that other nations don't take advantage of that nice law. 
And therefore we read, a foreigner, you're allowed to take interest when you lend the money. But for your brethren, your countrymen, do not take interest. So that Hashem, your God, will bless you in all your endeavors and the land that God is bringing you there now to inherit. Again, we find a law that shapes the character of the nation, caring about your fellow man and not taking advantage of situations where he is in financial trouble, but rather help him in a manner that he can recover. And again, we find another law that shapes the character of a just and kind nation. Pasach Abed, verse 22, we jump to another topic. Should one make a vow to Hashem your God, do not be late in fulfilling that vow. Chazal understand it's talking about when you make a vow to bring a sacrifice to God, you have up to the three pilgrimage holidays to bring that sacrifice. Because Hashem your God will demand from you your pledge, and if you don't bring it as you promised, that will be a sin. Pasach of Gimel, verse 23. And should you refrain from making vows, that will not be a sin. What Chavash is basically saying, it's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. And now in verse 24, Chavash explains the reason for this law. Pasach of Talad. What comes out from your lips, or basically whatever you promise to do, make sure to keep and do, just as you have vowed to Hashem your God a pledge, that which you spoke with your mouth. Therefore, treat your words carefully and don't go around promising things that you end up not doing. Again, we find another law that will shape the very character of our society. And now we will find two more examples of ideal behavior. Most all the commentators understand that this is talking about a worker harvesting someone else's field. While you're working, you may eat as many grapes as you would like, but you cannot put them in your own basket. Meaning when you're working in someone else's field, it's only logical that while you're picking grapes, you can eat as many grapes as you'd like. But because it's your job to harvest it for the owner of that vineyard, you cannot take it and put it in your basket and keep it for yourself. So again, this would be an expansion of Lotignov, thou shalt not steal. I could go to one extreme and say you cannot eat any grapes because they don't belong to you. But that would be not fair because when a person is working in the field, it's only right that he can take a grape seed while he's collecting them. On the other hand, he can't take advantage of his right to eat the grapes while he's harvesting and use them for his own monetary gain. And therefore, this law finds a happy medium in regard to the needs of the worker and the owner. Now in verse 26, we'll find a similar case when someone is harvesting grain. Pasach Avav Ki tavo v'kamat re'echa v'katavta melilot b'yadecha v'chamesh lo tanif al kamat re'echa When the worker is harvesting the grain of his comrade, he can pluck the heads of the grain with his hand, meaning he can take the kernels of wheat, but he cannot take a sickle and harvest the grain of his friend, because that would already be considered like stealing. Now in chapter 24, we begin a totally new topic in relation to divorce laws. 
Perech Abdalad, Pasuk Aleph, chapter 24, verse 1. Ki ish isha Should a man take a wife and have relations with her? Vaya im lo Should it come to pass that he is not happy with her? He doesn't like her? Ki Because he found something indecent about her. Then he should write her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and he must send her from his house. Anyone familiar with Mesechet Gitin knows the numerous amount of laws that are derived from this verse. But again, those are all beyond the scope of Ashur today. Pasuk Bet, verse 2. And should she leave the house after a divorce and go and marry another man? Pasigemo, verse 3. And should the second husband hate her? He also must write her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand. And send her away from his house. Or should the second husband, should he die, the husband who took her as his wife. These first three verses set the stage for the main point of this section, which is verse 4, Pasuk Dalet. Her first husband, who sent her away, cannot come back and take her back for a wife. After she had already become Tameh, here doesn't mean the classic case of Tumah being unclean, but rather after she can no longer be with him because she already had relations with her second husband. That's how Eben Ezra explains. She's not Tameh in general, but she is Tameh to her first husband. Whenever we have the word Tumah, it's usually when something can be together. If the Mikdash is Tameh, then God cannot dwell there. If a person is Tameh, he cannot enter the Mikdash. So when two people cannot be together, that status is called Tumah. Because this would be something detestable before God. And you should not bring sin on the land which Hashem your God is giving you as an inheritance. I think the main point that Chumash is making here is that one should not use the laws of divorce to enable a legal affair. Because the logic is quite simple. Once divorce is permitted by Jewish law, theoretically, one could use the laws of divorce to legalize an affair. He could divorce his wife, she can marry someone else, and then that second person can divorce her, and then he can take his wife back. Therefore, to prevent that loophole, Chumash commands us that it's forbidden to take back a wife that was divorced once she married someone else. Because if that was allowed, you could basically legalize lotina. That's why, according to Jewish law, if one divorces his wife but she did not remarry, then it's permitted to take the wife back. It's only after she marries someone else that it's forbidden. Therefore, to prevent the possibility of adultery, we need the special law in regard to divorce. In the commentary of Sforno on verse 4, you'll find a very similar explanation why this type of behavior would be called a toeva. That would be something detestable in the eyes of God, as basically you would enable a couple to have an affair, and that would undermine the very concept and principle of lotina.
Now in verse 5, in Pasukei, we'll continue with laws relating to marriage, not in regard to divorce, but possibly to something which may prevent divorce by making sure that the first year of marriage is successful. Verse 5, Ki kach ish isha chadasha, should a man take a new wife, lo he should not go to war that year, v'lo yavor alav l'chodavar, nor should he be charged with any public duty. Instead, naki yen leveto shana achad, v'simach et ishto asher lakach. Instead, he shall be free at home for one year, and he shall be happy together with his wife whom he has taken. This is the concept which we refer to as Shana Rishona. We treat a young married couple with special care the first year of marriage, and the assumption is this will help solidify the marriage with the hope that this will prevent the possibility of a later divorce. The next law, even though it's within the same parshia, has nothing to do with marriage, but it does have to do with caring about other people. Lo yechavo rechaim varachev ki nefesh huchavel. One should not take as collateral neither the top millstone or lower millstone, for by doing so, he would be taking the life of the person who is lending money from him. As we mentioned before, sometimes in day-to-day life, it's necessary to take a loan when someone is in financial trouble. And it's also logical to take some collateral to make sure the person pays the loan back. But what Chumash is saying here when you take a collateral, don't take something that that person needs for his livelihood. And because a millstone is something that's necessary for day-to-day life, for grinding flour and making a living, taking that as a pledge or collateral will put too much pressure on the person who borrowed the money, and therefore it's forbidden by the Torah. This law of not taking a collateral of something which is a person's livelihood, of course, is not only referring to Rechaim Barachev, not only to a handmill or the millstone, which is used to make flour and hence make bread, which in ancient times was central to a person's livelihood, but that law is applied to anything that a person needs for making a living. As we saw back in Parshat Mishpatim, in the book of Shmot, in chapter 22, verse 25, there we read, If someone takes as collateral the blanket or the clothing of your friend, bring it back to them before the sun sets, because that's the only thing they have to cover themselves. It's the only covering for his skin. With us will we have to sleep with. And it will come to pass when he cries out to me in his despair, I will hear the cry because I am a merciful God. And therefore, God's anger may be kindled against the person taking that collateral. So again, we see another example how we have a basic principle described in Parshat Mishpatim, in the laws that came on the same day as the Torah was given, and they're expanded upon in the more detailed laws that we find in Sefer Devarim, the laws that were given on the first 40 days in Har Sinai that will shape the character of God's nation. So in today's shir, we've seen many laws that relate to the very character of the nation. This pattern of different types of laws relating to our day-to-day life will continue in our shared tomorrow.